Last week, remember we talked about was, we opened up with a study in contrast. We saw this moment where Judas and the disciples were being critical of a woman who we, we think was Mary of Bethany, who had anointed the feet of Jesus in his head. And Jesus said, she did this because she's honoring me in my burial. She's actually preparing me. Um, she's doing this out of devotion for what I'm heading into. The disciples uh, didn't quite see it that way. They felt that, that she had been too extravagant, too wasteful, that it would have been better off giving away to the poor. It was an interesting discussion we had around that. Um, suffice to say that by the time it was done, Judas had seemingly turned a corner. And we left off with his decision, the decision of Jesus, Judas to betray Jesus for a paltry 30 pieces of silver, especially compared to the larger sum that had been argued over when uh, Jesus had been anointed by, by Mary of Bethany. And so we, we talked about this contrast and what smallness of heart looks like and what it means to have compassion and what it meant to honor the Lord. And now we're going to come to a, a moment where... We know what happened next. We know that the disciples and Jesus, as they were making their way towards the Passover celebration, went into the city of Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they actually had a room. It was called the Upper Room. And in that Upper Room, they gathered together as a close-knit band to celebrate something that had been done um, by uh, Jews and Jesus' people for generations. They, they had celebrated and honored the Passover. And it was a remembrance of a, a freeing that had occurred uh, in, way back when we talked about this last week, way back in Egypt, when God began their, their, their freedom into a, a new people, a new era, a new beginning. And we talked about the significance of the Lamb and the Passover and what all that meant. Well, they had gone to celebrate the Passover together. And it was going to be different than any other one they'd ever celebrated. Uh, things were about to happen. Things beautiful, profound, sad as well. There were some amazing things that transpired. I mean, we look at verse 31, and we realize here it says that on the way, Jesus told them, on the way from where to where. Let's talk about that. Again, where had they been? They had been in this upper room celebrating Passover in Jerusalem, inside the city gates. Now, we know some things that happened there. We know that, for example, that when they first got there, that there was actually an argument that broke out. And that argument that broke out was within their, their group, um, the disciples, we think it was connected to who got to sit where. But we know that they started to argue amongst themselves as to who should have the greater place, the place of honor, the place of preeminence. And believe it or not, this got somewhat heated, enough to where there were definite feelings and words being shared. And we look at it, and we, but I see it, and we might be tempted to minimize, how can they be so immature? We do the same stuff in different ways. And of course, in the middle of their argument, it would seem... Now, this is important to uh, throw this in as well. You know, we have four, four books of the New Testament that we call the four Gospels that talk about the life of Christ, share his words, his life story, the things that happened. So much of those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at it, so much of the, the percentage of the books themselves are devoted to the last week of the life of Christ. And particularly, we get, we get broad strokes in terms of his larger ministry but we get very significant, specific descriptions of the final part of his earthly ministry leading up to the cross. And that's helpful because what we can do, one of the values of looking at all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, now we're just primarily looking at Matthew's account, but when you intermix them and interface them and begin to compare them, what we see is that they give us all different pieces 
And those pieces, it's actually not to be thought of like a puzzle with each one giving a piece that fits in and creates. It's more like an overlapping piece of art that um, is like a collage. And so when you look at the accounts and you put them together, you begin to overlay them on one another, you get this clear picture of things that transpired. So we start to know that there were things that happened, exchanges that occurred. One might talk about one more than another, but their emphases and accents create a very helpful picture for us to see. They were having an argument. Who's the greatest? We're told that Jesus did something. It caught them all off guard. He, he in the midst of their argument, evidently decided he would teach them one final great lesson. And he got down on his, on his hands and knees, and he girded himself with a towel, and he picked up a basin, of, and he filled, filled it with water. And he did what none of them had been willing to do, play the role of a servant. And he began to start, and it must have caught them all off guard and quieted the room, He began to wash their feet. And of course, when he gets to Peter, Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. You're, you can't do, you, what are you doing? Jesus says, you need to let me wash your feet. Jesus says, I want you to understand, I need to do this. He that is greatest among you, you're talking about greatness. He that is greatest among you, let him be a servant of all. Don't ever forget what I'm doing right now. Don't ever forget. Remember this. It's important. It's not about how great you are. It's about a willingness to serve one another. Listen to me. If I am your Lord, and I am, and I am willing to do this, then how much more should you do this for one another? It was powerful, profound, impactful. We know that that happened that there was a, probably a, a, a beautiful thing that began to occur amongst them as they just sat with the significance of what Jesus had done and the lesson he taught them. But then Jesus disturbed what seemed to be this beautiful peace when he said something. He said this phrase. He said, I need to tell you something. Tonight, already is happening, but one of you, I think you, one of you is going to betray me. One of you in this room. And it must have, there it goes again. It must have caught everybody. And at the moment, it was like, I, you wonder if everybody's just scanning it because they're probably sitting in a, if they were doing this in the way that we think they were, they were probably reclining on some type of cushion sitting around in a larger circle. And you can imagine them at this moment when Jesus says that, they look at him, they start to look at one another and the eyes are going back and forth, scanning the room. By the way, nobody said, oh, we know who it is. It's Judas, right? Which tells us something. In fact, what we're told is something very different we're actually told that instead of them, as they were looking at each one another, starting to say, oh, I think it's you or you, it says that each one of them was driven inward. And they begin to ask this question, Lord, is, is, it, is it me? Which is very fascinating to think about this. What was it about that moment that caused them to pull back and look inward? And I think there's some truth there. There's a larger piece here that the closer we get towards the Lord, the harder it is to be proud and judgmental. And the more we are driven internally to look at our own heart and the more we see the potential in us, yes, even to, to hurt our Lord. It's there. It's in me. I need you. You see what I'm saying? So that happens and Jesus, Jesus goes on. They're talking. We know that at some point Peter and John inquire, Lord, who is, who is it? Who is the one? What's going on? And Jesus eventually says something like this, the one who I dipped the, the, the bread into the, 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 the sop, and I give, I give it to them. This is the one. Uh, but it seems like it didn't happen right at that moment. Later on, somewhere along the, into the evening, Jesus dips the bread, and he hands it to, to Judas. And he says, what you are to do, do it quickly. And it says, in very picturesque language in John, 
John's account, it says that he, he stealthily slips out and goes into the night. And there's that picture of moving into the night, into the darkness, alone. This is power. It's, it's intense. It's powerful. Jesus then turns to his disciples that are left, the 11 that are remaining. He says, listen, after they shared in the Passover, he says, I want, I'm going to do something new, different. I, I need to say something to you. He says, the Passover from now on is going to be different than it's ever been because something's about to happen. It's going to change it forever. All that it had anticipated is about to be fulfilled. I want to tell you something. Here's this bread. You see this bread? Pass it around. This bread, I tell you. This bread is my, my body, which will be broken for you. And see this cup that now holds this, this, in this, in this cup, this wine, this fruit of the vine. As you drink it, remember, this is, listen, my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. Uh, what, what I'm about to do is give my life away. Is it, and, and from that moment on, they, they marked that. We, he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He changed it forever. It became the Last Supper and the First Communion, as it were. And then it says that Jesus decided that after they had finished the, the Passover, and, and by the way, we have a particular service that we're planned, planning in a couple weeks where we're just going to talk about Christ and the Passover. We've got someone teaching it who's an expert um, at it as well. It's a fascinating study to revisit. That's going to be happening. You can see it in the C5 section, and, and I think it's in the C2 where it talks about it coming up. But suffice to say that Jesus then turns to the disciples and says, after they sang, he says, we must be going. And they, we know that they got up and they began to weave their way through the streets of Jerusalem until they got to the, the uh, gates of the city. And as they get to the gates of the city, and by the way, you can, you can see this today. And I've been to Israel a couple of times to see with my own eyes. It's fascinating to, to sort of see the geography of what we're reading about because you can see how when you leave the city of Jerusalem, you can go down into the valley of the Kidron up towards the Mount of Olives, which, is where they, which was the path they took. And as they went there, they made their way to a place that they were accustomed to going. It was a part, somewhere there was a garden piece of an olive grove called Gethsemane on the, on the Mount of Olives. It would have been hard to get to if you didn't know how to get to it. Today you go there, you can still see the remnants of a grove of olive trees, gnarled, hundreds, centuries, years old. People have built things to commemorate where the Lord would have been, but no one knows exactly where it was except to say it was around this area, and these were the kind of things trees and, and that it would have been there at the time. Judas knew, of course, where they went. He had a familiarity with their place, but you needed to have some type of a light and some way to find it. Jesus was going to a place they always went to. He had the disciples going with them. Along the way, things happened. Let's look at it. It says here that Jesus, along the way, as they made their way out of the city towards the garden, it says Jesus told them, listen to me. And again, it must have shaken them I need to say something. Because he had just talked about the traitor, right? He said, you want he's going to betray me. He says, listen to me. And it was one thing to say, okay, you know, someone's going to betray. It's another thing for him to say this. Listen to me. Tonight, I'm telling you, all of you are going to desert me. And he quotes a passage from Zechariah. He says, tonight, all of you will desert me. And the scriptures have even foretold it. God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, Jesus says. And then he adds on, but after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead to you, ahead of you to Galilee, and I will meet you there. And, and of course, 
these words indicated that Jesus did not see death as the end, but it wasn't really clear. And Jesus had talked in these types of words before, and we know this. We know that the disciples did not truly comprehend what Jesus is getting at. We read it back with such clarity. The way his position seems so clear. But as they were hearing it, they weren't fully getting. Is he talking metaphorically? Is it, is it symbol? Is he really meaning it? What's going on? I don't understand it. There was, it was a lack of clarity. It didn't make sense. What made sense to Peter, however, he, didn't even, he wasn't even focused, by the way, on the end of that statement of Jesus. He got stuck on the front. It was the part about, all of you will desert me. When he heard that part, he said, whoa, 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 I, I don't know what else, that other stuff you're talking. I, I need to go back to something you said. And then Peter does what very few people ever do. You know, Lord, I, I think I may have misheard you, but I just need to clarify something in case it is, is not really clear. I don't think it's what you meant, but if it is, I, I, I just need to sort of adjust that a little bit. Because, you know, when you, that part about you said, tonight all of you are going to de desert me? Um, well, you know, I don't really know about the rest of these guys, you know? <laughs> but but I, I, I need to say something to you. Is that I know me. And I'm going to tell you right now, I will never desert you. Listen, the, I'm, I'm a former fisherman. I'm, I'm stubborn. I, I know who I am. I'm not a perfect man. I get all that. But there's one thing I do know about me. I know about me is I'm loyal. And I love you. And I'll die with you. So I, I think you might have been talking about the rest of them, but, but it's when it comes to me, I'm just telling you right now, you kind of got this wrong. Maybe you might want to rephrase it a little bit. I mean, you, we can laugh at it. I'm having taken some uh, you know, freedom with it. But the bottom line is Peter's challenging Jesus. He has a faulty self -assess. Now, we read these words and we, from Peter. You know, Lord, you, I'll never deny you, You're right? I, I won't do it. I will never desert you, right? And, and we read it and we kind of wince because we know where it's going, right? We know what he's going to do. I'll never deny you. I know me, right? That's not who I am. That's one thing I know. I know my strength. I know what I am, and I know what I believe, and I believe in you, and I'm following you, and I'll never leave you. I'll fight for you. It was true, and in some ways it was true. He did, but you know what? Jesus was implying to him, look, you don't understand. You Look, you, okay, how can you say it? Peter, Peter says, I know me. Jesus says, well, it, and by the way, that was the language of supreme confidence. I know me. Jesus says, well, it's not a question, really, of your loyalty. It's a question of your strength. I'm not, I'm not saying you don't love me. What I'm saying is what we're heading into, what I'm about to walk into, I, you have no idea of where we are moving. You have no idea. You don't even know yourself. Not truly. You do not. Listen to me. And on another occasion, Jesus in Luke's account says this. Listen, Simon. Uh, Satan, he says, has desired to lay hold of your life and sift you as wheat. He is on your trail. He would take you down. There are things happening here. He goes, I prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And that after you, and then he says later, that you will be restored. I mean, he's talking about, he's telling him, look, there's stuff happening at an intense level. You don't understand what we are walking into at a spiritual level. This is way beyond you. This is, this is something you cannot understand. You will not stand up under this. What's coming you, you can't see it now, but it gonna, it's going to just hit, and when it does, 
You don't have enough in you. I'm telling you right now. Peter says, no, Lord, that's just not true. I will never, I'm saying it right now in front of everybody, I will never, never, there it is, I will never deny you. Never. And all the other disciples listening to Jesus say, that's right, we won't either, Lord. We're with you to the end. Jesus said, let me tell you something. And then he turns back. Look at it. He turns back to Peter, right? It's him. And he goes back to him and he says, I'm going to tell you something. You know what? Before the night is out, my friend, before the night is out, and this is, again, this is before they all join in. Jesus says, before the night is out, before the rooster crows to mark the beginning of a new day, you're not going to just deny me once. You're going to deny me Twice, three times. It's going to be emphatic. It's going to be a complete one. There will be no nuance here. You will break with me. I will not. Yes, you will. Powerful. Unresolved. Sitting out there. I tell you, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And they moved forward to the garden. And they all said, no, Lord, we'll never do it. And Peter joined, they all, well, well, okay, let's find out. All right, it says here, verse 40, it says that, I mean, verse 36, Jesus went with them to the olive grove. So they cross over, they get there, all right? He has this discussion. He says to them, look, sit here while I go over there and pray. Listen, I, he tells, the, um, he tells, they have 11 now, right? So he gets to the entrance of the garden and he says to the eight of them, he says, you just stay here. I, I, need, to, I need to pray. Um, and then it says that he turns uh, to uh, Simon, Peter, Peter, you, James, and, and John, I want you to come with me uh, a little further. That was his inner circle. James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, as they were sometimes called, fierce temper guys. It always intrigued me, John, who has this kind of temper issue, right, always wants to fight, ends up becoming the apostle of love by the time it's said and done. It's a great ironic irony, but it's also something that God's been doing in a lot of people's lives for a long time. He can take our greatest weakness and it becomes our greater strength. And it's wonderful because his gospel becomes a gospel of love and his letters become letters that encourage Christians and people just to love one another in an amazing way, emphasizing the love of God. I mean, that's what he becomes known as, but earlier in his life, he was a man with a fierce temper, but Jesus saw, recognized in him something. He says, Peter, you, James, and John, I need you to come with me. Look what we're told here. It says that he came, and, and he, it says that, look at that interesting, we're given this phrase here, too. It says that he became anguished and distressed. What that looked like, they, they must have been able to see it on his face. I tried to imagine Jesus feeling, all of a sudden, the anxiety and distress. And, and, he, and he says to them, listen to me. Listen to me. Um, my, my soul is I, I feel uh, crushed with grief right now. And what I need from you, even to the point of death, I, I, I just, look, I'm going to ask you to understand, I just need you to s sit here with me and pray. Just be with me. Watch with me here. Be with me in an alert, uh, present way. Can you, can you do that? I'm not asking you to do it. Just, just be here and be present and be awake. And then it says that Jesus goes, and he went a little bit farther. Look what it says. And he bowed with his face to the ground, and he began to pray. And he began to pray. He says, my father, if it is possible, if it is possible, I ask you to take this cup from me. Um, and what is the cup? What is that cup? What was the cup? Was it a literal cup that he, was, he wasn't holding? No. The cup was the cross. The cross in all, in all of its intensity. But the cross means so much. It was so 
more. And we think of the cross, oh, the cross had to do with um, the physical suffering that Jesus was going to have to sort of engage. And it's true. There was going to be a level of physical, you know, physical suffering that he was going to have to move into. There's no question about it. I mean, the, the, that's a part of we, we, we understand it. I mean, part of what we acknowledge is that Jesus is going to have his, his body just beaten to a pulp. There's no, he's going to get bruised, punched. He's, he's going to have uh, his back shredded with a whip. I mean, there's no question about that. He's going to be uh, stuck on a, a, a Roman cross. His hands are going to be hammered up there. I mean, it's going to be a painful, horrific, bloody mess that he's about to walk into. But I'm going to suggest to you that that really wasn't the full thing that he was referring to with the, with the cup, if, this, if it's possible, take this cup. And there, were, there was not only a physical dimension to the cross, but there was a humiliation as well. I mean, he was going to have, you got to remember, there were people who, uh, who couldn't wait to see him in all of his indignity. I mean, they had, Jesus had said things about them, and he, they were going to laugh him to scorn. He was going to have, he knew it. He was going to get stripped down to the bone. He was going to get paraded out there in the middle of the street. He was going to get thrown in there with, with, with common criminals, marched through. They were going to spit on him. They are going to rail on him. and say, while I was hanging up there, you said you could build that temple if it was torn down. If you are the son of God that you said you were, take yourself off of that cross Show us. Otherwise, you will deserve everything you get. And they spit on him and they mocked him. It was everything that he saw. He saw it. He saw it coming. He, he could feel it. But that wasn't just it. It was more than that. There was another dimension. He was moving into the first time to an experience that he had never, he had never experienced separation, anything but unity with the Father. He had never experienced it ever. He had never known separation, and for the first time, he's going to feel not just separation, but he's going to feel guilt. You know, you know, I there are, if you struggle with guilt, we struggle with guilt. There is a heaviness to that, but to imagine to feel the guilt of a collective guilt of the world more than that, even whatever evil is in its deepest expression, at some level, we we, we you know you and I see pieces of it. We hear stories, we read things, we turn our head. It's awful. We some of us try to help. And, and, and address it when we see it in the culture or in our world. But God sees evil in its tentacles that stretch all over humanity, and it's everywhere in every corner. And there are people doing unspeakable things to other people. And God sees it all, and all, it's just there, and it has been a part of our history. And, and Jesus t is, is walking into whatever that... Look, there's this statement here. And uh, J.C. Ryle, uh, I put this in an old writer. He says this. He says it was the cup. Speaking of the cup, he says it was the burden of our collective guilt that was imputed, that is put on his account, laid on him, as on the head of a scapegoat, when the priest would put her, lay hands on the goat and send it in the wilderness to push ahead the sins of the people. It's like he becomes the ultimate lamb, the ultimate one to bear our sin and shame. And, and look what it says. I, how great that burden must have been. No heart of man can conceive. And then Ryle says this phrase, it is known only to God. There's an element of the cup that there is no adequate way for a human being to describe what Jesus is walking into, except that it is like this dark way that he had to move. He sees it coming. He decides, look, Father, listen. And, I, and I'll tell you, what his struggle here tells me he was a fully human being as well who, who was completely coherent, and understood exactly where he was heading. It was not a lunatic response to say, 
Father, if it is possible, if there is another way to achieve the purpose that you have crafted, I ask you now if it is possible for your plan to be fulfilled with me not having to drink this cup, then may it be so. And, and then the surrender, then the driver, then the settling. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and so there's the first planting of that. He gets back up, the scripture says, he makes his way and he comes to his disciples. And this is sadly humorous as well. I mean, here is Peter's telling him how much he was going to, going to, you know, never deny him. I'll die for you. And all Jesus had asked him, could you, you just like just stay up for an hour and watch with me and be with me, be present? What does it say? What does it say here? It says that he returned to the disciples and where did he find them? Sleeping. Sleeping. I think maybe they tried. Maybe it was like initially, you know, it was like just did. And then eventually it's like, I, I, and then they just went out. Jesus comes to him and says, wake up. Couldn't you, listen, couldn't you even watch me just like one hour? I'm not asking you to die. Just asking you to stick with me for an hour. My loyal friend. Mm. Then Jesus went with them to the olive. Again, he went back. He, he says, keep and watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. He says a truth that echoes now to all of us. The spirit is willing, yes, but the flesh is weak. The body is weak. Then Jesus left a second time, prayed again. My father, this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it. Then I say to you again, your will be done. He goes back for a third time. Threes are everywhere here. He finds them once again, sleeping away. He finally, this time, he doesn't say anything beyond just this. uh, Go ahead and sleep on, my friends. Have your rest, but look, even now I tell you. The time is at hand. It is now. It is coming. Rise up. The betrayer is here. Look, there he is. And it says here that let us be going. Look, for the betrayer is here now. And sure enough, as that is happening, there is the torch coming through with the band of men that are with him to arrest Jesus. And so it begins. So it goes. So it has started. Now, quickly, with the time that we have left, I want to take this. Let's sit with it just real quickly, briefly, and engage it a little bit more. Because, again, we've looked at the passage. We've, we've thought about this. We're connecting to it. It's part of where we're moving in this whole account towards the cross. But what does it have to say to us? Let me suggest something. There's a couple of things worth noticing. Number one, in relation to Peter. Again, I just want to kind of put this out there for us to be thinking about. Because I hope that we're moving into this time with an intentionality of drawing closer to Jesus and, and strengthening our relationship with him. But look at this. When we think about our own life, when we think about our own sort of sense of confidence, let us note the danger of overestimating our own capacities, particularly our spiritual capacities. I mean, Peter meant what he said. He believed his words. He, when he made his declaration, it was utterly and wholly earnest and sincere. Unfortunately, it was something that was slightly off because he had so believed in his strengths that he underestimated his weakness. And some of us, we, we feel we have strengths. And there might be areas of our lives that we actually take some pride in. I, I noticed that Peter was very proud of, of, of this part of who he was. And I suppose all of us have areas that we, we feel good about, that we feel um, that, that somehow we, have, we, have, we take pride in, I mean, in a healthy way in them. But you know what? There's also a danger of underestimating our own capacity and our own weaknesses and how even our strengths can betray us in the end. To, we always must guard, listen, I don't know how, how, however else it is, but in Christ, in this Christian life, in this life with Christ, we must always, always take into account our own 
potential of, of weakness and failure and factor that in. And remember that we, we are never invincible, that all of us, the best of us, and none of us knows that really at the end of the day, that, that, that we all have areas that we might say, I'm strong here, but you know what? Take heed. That's one of the reasons why be careful, watchful. One of the things that Peter did, does here is he disregards the words of Jesus. Jesus says, let me tell you what's happening. He says, you don't know me, Lord, but he does know us. Listen, the word of the Lord is such a powerful truth. It's like the Bible says that the word of God is like a light into my path and a lamp into my feet. That the words of the Lord are able to make us wise for living and unto salvation. That is able to keep us from falling. How shall a young man, how shall a young woman keep their way clean by taking heed according to your word? You know what the way of blessing is? Think about Psalm 1. Blessed, oh, the joy of the one who does not, what? Walk in, in, in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scornful, does not join with those who mock the things of God. But that person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, they meditate day and night. They're going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, full of life, brings forth its fruit and its season. Its leaf also doesn't wither, and it will have good success. I mean, you think about the promises associated with one who lives close to the word. His words near to us keep us in a good place. And remind us always, I can't do this apart from you. Secondly, connected to this, this is one more sort of additional truth. Notice, and it's true of Jesus. I, I, as I looked at it, I, I caught me. I've read this passage probably hundreds of times. And in my life, I've shared on it for the last three decades a number of times. I want to suggest to you um, that I never quite thought about it in this way. Here it is. How beneficial it is to have spiritual companions next to us when we are in trying and difficult times. And the reason that stands out to me here is to think about it. Even Jesus... Even Jesus, in his hour of need, wanted to be surrounded and supported by his friends, his disciples. Think about it. Listen, I don't need you to do anything. I don't even need you to understand. I just, can you be with me here? Wow. Now, they ultimately weren't much help. We agree. They fell asleep on him. But he, but you know, again, and I'm, I think part of what I'm, I'm suggesting here is that Jesus knew what he was walking into, and it, and it really isn't to underscore. Just stay with me on this. It's not to underscore their failure. I get that because you know what, I'm, I'm just with them. It's whatever they did, I could do it and have. Now I'm really actually flipping it around and saying, wow, Jesus, he, if anybody didn't need anybody, it's him. And yet here he is heading into something. They can't even get what he's heading into. They don't understand it. None of us really ever will. Jesus is going into it. In a way, he's never been more alone than he is right there. And yet he says, could you just be present with me? And there is something about it in that struggle, in that struggle where he finishes it, where he, before it ever got to, it is finished. It was finished in the garden. It was finished. Not my will. The third time, hammered it in. Yours be done. Yours be done. But he wanted them with him. They just didn't, they didn't, they weren't there to show up. Now, you and I are going to struggle in life at times. There are going to be times where we are going to have, it's going to be hard to do what God wants us to do. We're going to say, Lord, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. I want to get out of here. I want to do what's going to be good for me. Take care of me. It's all about me. That's what our world tells us, our culture tells us incessantly. Sacrifice is the way. There is times where Christ will call us to say, it is not about me. 
It is about, because if it's just about me, I don't know if I want to walk into this thing. But it's not. It's about you, and it's about all of those who are going to live because of the choice that I'm making. Father, I do this by my own will. And everything that we ultimately do for God must be choice if it's going to mean anything. Love coerced is not love at all. It only becomes love when it's chosen. And he, he didn't have to do it. He didn't want to do it. He did it. And he didn't do, but it's again, but he did it with, with, with a desire to have someone with him. And you and I are going to need the value, see it, see it, of having community, making it a priority in our life with Christ to have others walk with us. There are going to be times where we are going to have to work hard to do what is right in God's eyes or to not succumb to what is the easier play, but it's the wrong way. And that's when others can come in and just being there. Here's the thing. We need it. It's never meant to be a solo journey. They had a, Jesus had a group. And even Jesus, going into this place, says, can you walk with me? You see what I'm saying? Now, can we, not only do we need that, can we be that for other people? I keep saying that. Lord, remind me that there are going to come times where some are going to be in a struggle place, just like I will be at times. And may I be a person who shows up in a present way for those who you put in my heart to be there for. And, and that's sometimes just not, I'll never understand it, but I'm with you. Lastly, it's connected to this. Let us also note the power, number three, of prayer. Okay, we talk about prayer. But you know what? At the end of the day, it was in prayer, real, honest, authentic, face-to-the-ground prayer that Jesus settles this issue once and for all. There's something about having these times in our lives where we just surrender to God. Not my will. Yours be done, Lord. We're invited to pray because in the end, he will not force us again. We must choose. It was true for the, if it was true for the perfect son, it's true for us as well. We get to decide. And I guess Jesus is reminding his disciples that the secret of their spiritual strength and success was always going to be connected to him. And it always will be. It always will be. And because and to what their willingness, he says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Listen, it's because the real power is always relational. It's about relationship with God. It's about something. It's not just about believing a set of principles. It's about an ongoing, living, breathing relationship. And prayer becomes something that's just a part of our life. I thank you, Lord, for this gift. I thank you for the cross. I, I thank you for the promise that I have. I, I, I'm walking through this day. You're near to me. Your word is near to my life. I live by your words. Your words mean things to me. I invite you, Lord, to give me a, a heart that loves others. I'm open to you. I'm, it's as natural to me talking with you, Lord, as it is breathing this, this breath that I'm breathing now. It's as real as breathing. I was made to do it. So it is in the spirit. I was made to be with you, God. I breathe you in. Breath of life. When God made the first human being, he breathed life. Life in God. Prayer. The gift of God. All these things. Let's, let's, let's pray. All right. Lord, we thank you. You know, as we're here, is we're here in this moment, and, it, and it's been a good moment for us to share together. It is good for us to be here together. And we spent the bulk of our time focusing on what you did, how you modeled your interactions with, with your disciples, Lord. We also want to follow you. I want to ask you, Lord, to keep working in our lives. I know there are places we'll never be called to do what you did. None of us could ever do it. We get that. 
But there are places we get to, Lord, where we're asked to surrender things. And maybe this is a season where as we move towards the cross and to everything that that entails, as we journey through that cross into new beginning, life evermore in Christ, that, Lord, there would be a part of us that would just say, Lord, help me to surrender and let go and be open to the new things you want to do in my life on the basis of the victory of the cross, Lord, my eyes are cast upon you. So I just want to ask you, Lord, to bless, you know, just kind of bless what we've done, what we share, let it linger in us. Uh, bless the, the closing song, which just connects so much to this idea of community. And also on our time of giving, which we honor you together. In Jesus' name we pray. In your name, Lord, amen. God.